Our first reading this morning is out of the New Testament. It's out of the book of Galatians, chapters 5, verse 1 and 13 through 18. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Here ends the reading. Two lessons from the Old Testament this morning. First, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. In this text, the people are still wandering in the wilderness, and Moses has given them the law. And Moses foresees that when the people enter the promised land, they will want to have a king like all the other nations. And so God, through Moses, offers these instructions about how Israel's kings ought to conduct themselves once the kingship begins. So listen now to Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. We turn now to our reading from 1 Kings chapter 10. Here the text is surveying the life of King Solomon, and let's see how well Solomon adheres to Deuteronomy's uh, commandments about how the king ought to conduct himself, which we've just heard. 1 Kings 10, verses 14 through 29. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the traders and from the business of the merchants, and from all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each large shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king 
put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. The top of the throne was rounded in the back, and on each side of the seat were two armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions were standing, one on each end of a step of the six steps. Nothing like it was ever made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought a present, objects of silver and gold, garments, weaponry, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as numerous as the sycamores of the Shephelah. Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. So through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you can probably see, King Solomon reigned over Israel during its period of greatest prosperity and freedom. He inherited a vast kingdom from his father David, and his aggressive economic policies and building projects only added to his wealth and prestige. He formed vast military alliances to consolidate his power, and he imported enormous quantities of precious stones, wood, spices, all the good stuff. Solomon had it all. But a careful reading of his resume reveals that his love of money and fame and power ultimately eroded his faithfulness to God's commands. And his mistakes would mark the beginning of the end of Israel's freedom and independence. Solomon's power proved too much for him to handle. I suppose the world is full of stories about people who get too big for their britches, people who get too rich or too powerful too quickly such that they become totally different people. Just think about Disney Channel stars who be, get fame and fortune as young kids, but their adult lives are a mess, or professional athletes who make horrible mistakes financially or personally right in the prime of their careers. 
Even many megachurch pastors who gain a wide following end up mired in scandal. Money and fame and power are not bad in and of themselves. But the unmistakable truth is that they seem to be the things that human beings idolize the most. And as such, they can be quite dangerous. What might be a blessing in one moment can easily become a curse in the next if we're not careful. Because human beings don't really know what to do with untethered freedom. And what we want isn't always what we need. Somehow Solomon was not careful, despite the wisdom that God had granted him. Because as we heard in Deuteronomy, Moses had warned the Israelites that their king should not import a lot of horses, or marry lots of wives, or acquire lots of gold. Otherwise, the text says, his heart will turn away. And yet Solomon does all of these things one by one. He acquires so much gold that it takes eight verses just to describe what he did with that gold. He imports horses and chariots from Egypt, and he marries many wives, 700 to be exact, never mind his 300 concubines, which the next chapter of 1 Kings details. Solomon's kingdom is a dramatic transformation from Israel's humble beginnings. Remember, the people of Israel began as slaves in the land of Egypt, servants of the Pharaoh and laborers for the Pharaoh's massive building projects. If you've ever been to Egypt or seen photos of the pyramids, then you know how much the Pharaohs loved to build stuff. But through Moses, God had set them free from there and led them through the desert, sheltering the powerless vulnerable people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then Moses gave the people the law, the gist of which was that the people were not to repeat among themselves what life had been like in Egypt. They were not to duplicate Egyptian oppression and greed in the promised land. And yet by the time we get to Solomon, Israel has done exactly that. Solomon enslaves people for his massive building projects. He marries Pharaoh's daughter as his favorite wife, and he imports Egyptian horses. The scripture's verdict on Solomon is clear, especially to those who have read Deuteronomy. Solomon has become Pharaoh. He's become Pharaoh. And so the nation has taken a 180-degree turn from its days of slavery in Egypt. The freedom God granted them has only led to sin. And Moses' warning about Israel's kings has come to pass. Solomon has become Pharaoh. Now, if we were to zoom out and consider the tragedy of Solomon from 38,000 feet, the lesson that emerges is somewhat surprising. And that lesson is this. God's blessings do not necessarily bring us closer to God. God's blessings do not necessarily bring us closer to God. In fact, sometimes God's blessings end up being temptations because a misused blessing can become a curse. As we receive good things from God, we ought to ask ourselves, 
Whether these blessings are leading us to deeper faith in God, or whether the blessings are leading us to neglect our faith in God, leading us to believe that we are in fact in charge, the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. A number of years ago, I had a conversation with a pastor in Latin America about what we might call the prosperity gospel, which is a flavor of Christianity that emphasizes material prosperity as a reward for following God. The movement's pretty big here in the United States and in much of the developing world. The pastor shared with our group a number of stories about people who, from his community, came into his church mired in drug addictions or crime, nearing the end of having their families with them, but then they became Christians and being freed from their sins, their lives took a dramatic turn, and now they were becoming healthier and wealthier. And after his talk, I pressed him about some of his claims. Isn't it wrong, I asked him, to use God as a means to an end, to use faith as a means to wealth? Don't extravagant promises of health and wealth just encourage love of money over love of God? Isn't discipleship costly rather than lucrative? And the pastor was ready for my questions. He said, it's different in America. You already have wealth and medicine and security, so you don't need to pray for it. Your churches are shrinking because you don't depend on God. You've got it all already. And although I still think I had some valid questions, I did realize that it's easy to be critical of the prosperity gospel when you yourself are prosperous, right? It's easy not to pray for daily bread when you have a month's worth of food in your pantry. It's easy for God to become irrelevant and seemingly unnecessary when you can meet most of your own needs yourself. As slaves in Egypt and as a wandering desert caravan, the Israelites had to depend on God for daily bread coming down as manna from the sky, for daily water gushing forth from a rock. They had to depend on God to lead them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They needed God every hour. They had nothing on their own. But when they got to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, they gradually built up their wealth and their power and their influence and their security. They conquered and subdued the nations around them, and ultimately their kings came to believe that they could simply depend upon themselves. It's not that they stopped believing in God. No, it's that they stopped depending on God. And there's a difference. God simply became irrelevant and of little importance in their daily prosperous lives. Now, I suppose it would be too bold to draw a strict parallel between the sin of Solomon and the decline of religiosity in the Western world today. But perhaps they're not altogether unrelated. Some may think that atheism is sweeping across the land, but that's not really the case. In fact, according to a pre-pandemic Pew Research survey, 80% of U.S. Americans answered yes to the question, do you believe in God? And 56% said they believed in the God of the Bible. But only 36% of Americans attend church regularly. 
In other words, there's a lot of people out there who believe in God generally, even in our Christian God specifically, but who do not go to church. And so maybe what's happening in America is not that people have stopped believing in God, but rather that God has come to seem irrelevant or even unnecessary to many in their daily life. Prosperity gives a false sense of control and an illusion of freedom. And if that's the case, then perhaps it's worth asking ourselves if some of the things we value most as a culture might not necessarily be edifying to our faith. We tend to value the ideals of independence and self-sufficiency, right? The freedom to say and do whatever we want. And to be sure, many blessings come from these values. I can't imagine what it would be like to live in a country that lacked basic freedoms like freedom of speech or freedom of assembly, which we are exercising right now. I'm thankful for the freedom to life, liberty, and happiness, and I'm sure you are as well. But every rose has its thorns. And as we lean into our individual freedoms, there's always a danger that in doing so, we might forget about our need for God and abandon our commitment to God's will. As we prosper, we may begin to forget about God. That's the danger of blessings. We may not stop believing in God if some survey puts the question to us, but we may decide that in practice we can get along just fine without engaging God much. And so God becomes an afterthought in our otherwise busy lives. In a prosperous culture, indifference, more than atheism, is the biggest threat to our faith. And I think Solomon fell prey to indifference. It's not that he decided God didn't exist anymore. After all, he did build God's temple in Jerusalem. It's just that Solomon decided to use his power and fame and wealth in a way that made it matter more to him than faithfulness to God. And so the godly virtues of prayer and service and humility and sacrifice and generosity all fell to the back burner as Solomon gave his individual freedoms priority. And so the Bible reports that Solomon spent almost twice as long building his own house as he did building the temple. His building priorities reflect what's going on inside him. His own opulence was more important to him than a closer walk with God. In the end, Solomon decided that the freedom God had given him through prosperity was simply a license to do whatever he wants. But throughout the scriptures, the freedom that God gives is never about doing whatever we want. Biblical freedom doesn't eliminate allegiance. It brings a change of allegiance. We are freed from the death-dealing bondage to sin in order to submit faithfully to the will of God. Freedom from sin is simply a freedom for discipleship. It seems counterintuitive, but biblical freedom has as its purpose an altogether different kind of conformity. True freedom is found in, obedient, in obedience to Christ our Lord, in conforming to the person of Christ. 
And so Paul can say, as he does in our text from Galatians, that Christ has set us free not for self-indulgence, not for doing whatever we want, but rather so that through love we can become subject to one another. For we are led not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. As Solomon received blessings from God, blessings of wealth and power, he failed to use the freedom that came with them to submit to God's law as Moses had outlined it. Instead, his heart turned away, and he became a servant to the self-indulgence of his flesh, to use Paul's language. But it didn't need to be this way. Solomon could have used his freedom to pursue God's will for himself and his people all the more diligently. But with all his needs met, Solomon became indifferent to God. Freed from uncertainty about his physical needs, Solomon must have figured he was free from his spiritual needs too. God had blessed him greatly, but he responded with greed rather than gratitude. And friends, that's the point. Blessings bring freedom. But blessings can become temptations if we receive them with greed rather than gratitude. If we receive blessings with greed and we use them for self-indulgence, ultimately our hearts will turn away and we'll begin to think we don't really need God after all. But if we receive blessings with gratitude, we will be stirred to a deeper discipleship with Christ. We'll come to know that Christ has set us free in order that we might love and be subject to one another, just as he commanded us. Someone asked, what if you woke up tomorrow with only the things you thanked God for today? What would you wake up with? Does gratitude saturate your heart when you survey all that God has done for you? Does God's goodness in your life draw you closer to God? May our hearts not turn away because of all that God has given us. But rather, may we respond to God's blessings with a gratitude that compels us to follow Christ all the more faithfully. Because after all, as Solomon should have known, faithful discipleship is what it means to be truly wise. Thanks be to God. Amen.